Chapter 3, Part 1 of U.S. Marine Operations in Korea, 1950-1953, Volume 2, The Inchon Seoul Operation, by Lynn Montross and Nicholas Canzona. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Operation Plan Chromite The scars of war heal rapidly. From the air, General Smith could see jungle covering the battlefields of Guam. Iwo Jima looked as untouched as if it had never been the scene of Marine casualties exceeding the losses of the Union Army at Gettysburg. Even fire-blasted Tokyo had recovered to a surprising extent from the terrible bombings of 1945. Now, five years later, the United States had entered upon a new military effort. As the Marine General landed at Haneda Airfield on the afternoon of 22 August 1950, he was met by Admiral Doyle and driven to the Mount McKinley, tied up at the dock in Tokyo Harbor. And though assigned to the cabin reserved for the landing force commander, CG 1st Marine Division found it an ironical circumstance that he did not yet know the prospective D-Day and H-Hour of the landing. He had not long to wait for such data. The advanced section of the Marine Planning Group being already aboard the Mount McKinley, he was quickly informed by Colonel Bowser, the G-3 of the Incomplete Division staff. D-Day at Inchon had been tentatively set for 15 September, and the landing must be made during the high tide of late afternoon. It meant assaulting a port of 250,000 pre-war population over the mudflats and seawalls, with little opportunity to consolidate positions before nightfall. Nor would there be time for training and rehearsals since the troops would reach Japan barely in time to unload and reload an amphibious shipping before proceeding to the objective area. General Smith learned further that a new command structure, to be known as Ten Corps, was being hastily erected by FECOM especially for the operation. No announcement had been made of the project still classified as top secret, but it was known to the planning group that General Allman would command a corps not yet activated. The 1st Marine Division would be under his control as the landing force. Admiral Doyle, an old hand at amphibious warfare, was not happy about Inchon when he considered the naval aspects. Initiated at Guadalcanal and Tulagi in 1942, he had taken part in some rugged ship-to-shore assaults of World War II. Afterwards, as commander of amphibious shipping for the Pacific Fleet, he had made a career of it and Admiral Doyle considered Inchon a hard nut to crack. He refused to admit that any amphibious operation was impossible as long as the United States Navy remained afloat, but he did maintain that Inchon bristled with risks. In 20 minutes that Tuesday afternoon, General Smith heard enough to convince him that the forthcoming assault would take a great deal of doing. But there was no time for discussion. For at 17.30, just two hours after stepping from his plane, he had an appointment with the Commander-in-Chief. Interview with General MacArthur Arriving on the minute at the Daiichi building, General Smith reported to FECOM headquarters. He was met by an aide who escorted him to General Almond's office. On the way down echoing corridors, he responded at frequent intervals to the salute of sentries who presented arms with fixed bayonets. The offices of Sink V and his chief of staff were connected by an imposing conference room with paneled walls and pillars along one side. General Smith had an opportunity to survey his surroundings at leisure before General Almond appeared. 
The new Ten Corps commander explained that his chief had a habit of taking a long afternoon break and would arrive later. Of medium height and stocky build, Allman gave the impression at the age of 58 of a buoyant temperament and restless energy. A native Virginian and graduate of the Virginia Military Institute, he had been an ETO division commander in World War II. After joining MacArthur's staff, he became one of the most loyal officers of a group noted for devotion to their famous chief. Allman greeted the reserved, white-haired Marine general cordially. He launched at once into the topic of the Inchon operation, expressing the utmost confidence in the ability of the UN forces to prevail. It was the initial contact of the two men. Mutual respect was not lacking, but differences in temperament made it inevitable that these generals would not always see eye to eye. History teaches that this is by no means a deplorable situation when kept within reasonable bounds. Character can be as decisive a factor as logistics, and some of the greatest victories of the ages have been won by colleagues who did not agree at times. Friction, in fact, is more likely to sharpen than to blunt military intellects, and Smith's precision had potentialities of being a good counterpoise for Allman's energy. While they were discussing the tactile problems, the commander-in-chief returned to his office. He summoned his chief of staff for a brief conference, then requested that Smith be presented. MacArthur shook hands warmly, grasping the Marine General's elbow with his left hand. Without the celebrated scrambled eggs cap, he looked his 70 years in moments of fatigue, but the old fire and dash were not lacking. The very simplicity of his attire, shirt sleeves and open collar, made a dramatic contrast to the military pomp and ceremony surrounding him in this former Japanese commercial building, one of the few earthquake-proof and air-conditioned structures in Tokyo. In a cigarette-smoking age, both MacArthur and Smith preferred the calm comfort of a pipe. The commander-in-chief lit up and puffed reflectively a moment. Then he leaned back in his chair and gave his concept of the Inchon operation. But it was more than a concept in the usual military sense. It was a vision of a victory potent enough to end the Korean conflict at a stroke. And it was more than confidence which upheld him. It was a supreme and almost mystical faith that he could not fail. He granted, of course, that there were difficulties and risks. Evidently, Allman had mentioned Smith's reservations, for he proceeded to reassure the Marine General. His voice full of feeling, he expressed his deep conviction that the war could be won in a month at Inchon and that the 1st Marine Division could win it. The enemy, he explained, had committed nearly all of his troops in the Pusan perimeter. Thus, the Marines would not be heavily opposed when they stormed ashore at Inchon and drove inland to cut the main NKPA line of communications at Seoul. MacArthur said he knew that the Marines had high standards, having commanded them in the New Britain operation of the last war. He realized that the Marines strove for perfection, and the Inchon landing was bound to be somewhat helter-skelter by the very nature of things. But there was no doubt, he affirmed, that the victory soon to be gained by the 1st Marine Division would make 15 September 1950 a glorious date in American history. His voice was charged with fervor as it rose and fell eloquently. Once General Smith made a move as if to depart, but the commander-in-chief motioned him back to his chair. At last he brought the conversation to a close by standing suddenly, grasping the Marine General's hand, and bidding him a cordial goodbye. Conferences in Tokyo 
It was sometimes an awkward situation for Navy and Marine officers in general, and Admiral Doyle and General Smith in particular. In many respects, they appeared doubters and pessimists in contrast to FECOM staff officers who reflected General MacArthur's shining confidence. But as amphibious specialists, carrying a heavy load of responsibility for the landing, they had to give serious thought to the risk at Inchon. This was brought home forcibly to the Marine General on the morning of the 23rd, when he attended a meeting conducted by Major General Clark L. Ruffner, Chief of Staff of the future Ten Corps. Although the conference proceeded according to the usual form, General Smith felt that it departed at times from the realism which he considered an essential of sound amphibious planning. It was announced, for instance, that after taking Inchon, the 1st Marine Division was to cross the Han and attack Seoul, although Ten Corps had neither equipment nor material for bridging the sizable river. A review of the background disclosed that after Sink V decided on 10 July not to use the 1st Cavalry Division as his landing force, he briefly considered two other Army outfits. The 2nd Infantry Division, commanded by Major General Lawrence B. Kaiser, was then under orders to embark from the West Coast. Some of the personnel had been given amphibious training by an Anglico instruction team and had taken part in Operation Mickey, but the division as a whole was much under strength. The same difficulty led to the elimination of Major General David G. Barr's 7th Infantry Division in Japan, which had supplied troops to units at the front until only a cadre remained. The assurance on 25 July of a war-strength Marine Division took care of the who question. Next came the problem of when and where an amphibious assault could be best mounted. Janus, Joint Army and Navy Intelligence Studies, reports indicated that the east coast of Korea, though of lesser importance in military respects, offered such hydrographic advantages as unusually moderate tides and a general absence of shoals. In forbidding contrast, the shallow west coast waters could be navigated at most points only by means of narrow channels winding through the mudflats. Of all the west coast seaports, Inchon was probably the least desirable objective when considered strictly from the viewpoint of hydrographic conditions. From first to last, however, Inchon was Douglas MacArthur's choice. FECOM staff officers ventured to suggest two alternatives, Wansan on the east coast and Kunsan on the west coast, but the commander-in-chief replied that neither was close enough to the enemy's main line of communications to suit his purposes. He would settle for nothing less than Inchon. So much for the place. As to the time, the choice was even more limited. The tidal range varied from an average spring tide height of 23 feet to an occasional maximum of 33 feet. Landing craft required a tide of 25 feet to navigate the mudflats of the harbor, and the LSTs must have 29 feet. Only during a few days in the middle of September and October were those depths provided by spring tides of the next 12 weeks. MacArthur rejected an October date as being too late in the season, so that 15 September became D-Day by virtue of elimination. A late afternoon HR was also a choice of necessity. Islands, reefs, and shoals restricted the approach to the outer harbor, and currents ranging from three to six knots multiplied the chances of confusion. This meant that daylight landings were necessary for all but small groups. Much of the inner harbor was a vast swamp at low water, 
penetrated by a single dredged channel 12 to 13 feet deep. The duration of spring tides above the prescribed minimum depth averaged about three hours, and during this interval the maximum in troops and supplies must be put ashore. Every minute counted since initial landing forces could not be reinforced or supplied until the next high water period. Time and tide seemed to have combined forces to protect Inchon from seaborne foes. As if such natural obstacles were not enough, the target area provided others. Two islands, Walmido and Sowalmido, located in a commanding position between the inner and outer harbors, were linked to each other and to Inchon by a causeway. In advance of intelligence reports, it must be assumed that rocky, wooded Walmido would be honeycombed with hidden emplacements for enough guns to create a serious menace for the landing craft. This critical terrain feature must somehow be reduced as a preliminary to the main landing during the high tide of late afternoon. Inchon being situated on a hilly promontory, the beaches were mere narrow strips of urban waterfront protected by seawalls too high for ramps to be dropped at any stage of the tide. Once past these barriers, the troops would have about two hours of daylight in which to secure an oriental city with a population comparable to that of Omaha. But the amphibious assault was only the first phase of the operation as conceived by Sink Fee. After taking Inchon, the landing force had the task of driving some 16 miles inland, without loss of momentum, to assault Korea's largest airfield before crossing a tidal river to assault Korea's largest city. And even this ambitious undertaking was not the whole show. For a joint operation was to be carried out meanwhile by 8th Army forces thrusting northward from the Pusan perimeter to form a junction with the units of the Inchon Soul Drive. This double-barreled assault, it was believed, would shatter North Korean resistance and put an end to the war. Inception of Ten Corps the time, the place, the landing force, the main objectives, these essentials of the proposed Inchon Seoul operation had been pretty well settled, at least to General MacArthur's satisfaction, by the first week of August. But even though he had his assault troops, there was as yet no headquarters organization. Admiral Sherman urged early in August that the commander-in-chief call upon General Shepard and the facilities of the FMF PAC organization at Pearl Harbor. Since there was so little time left before D-Day, only a fraction of the time usually allotted to the planning phase of a major ship-to-shore assault, he felt that amphibious know-how and experience were required. He proposed, therefore, that steps be taken to obtain the approval of Admiral Radford, who had jurisdiction over FMF PAC. The need for a headquarters organization was discussed on 7 August by the Joint Strategic Plans and Operations Group, J.S. Pog of FECOM. Brigadier General Wright, G3 of FECOM, received a memorandum from the other members of the staff recommending that the gap be filled in one of two ways, either by putting into effect Admiral Sherman's plan or by sponsoring the organization of a provisional corps headquarters. General Wright favored the first course of action, as did Brigadier General Doyle G. Hickey, FECOM Deputy Chief of Staff. Ultimately, however, the FECOM Chief of Staff decided in favor of the latter command arrangement. End of Chapter 3, Part 1 Read by Aaron Bennett